0: Oscilloscope presents the film The Tale of King Crab. The International Cinephile Society hails it as an atmospheric masterpiece and an unforgettable chronicle of humanity. The sumptuous Italian fable of love, adventure, and redemption across 19th century Tuscany and Tierra del Fuego opens April 15th exclusively at Film at Lincoln Center. The Cannes and New York Film Festival favorite is proudly supported by Cinema Made in Italy. For tickets, visit filmlink.org slash crab.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Clinton Crute, co-deputy editor of Film Comment. For this week's podcast, I sat down with filmmakers Stuart Byrd and Deborah Schaefer, the duo behind the 1979 documentary The Wobblies. The film tells the story of the industrial workers of the world, the radical labor union that nearly brought American industry to its knees in the early years of the 20th century. With The Wobblies, Stuart and Deborah painted a moving and eye-opening portrait of a movement. Weaving together remarkable oral histories with stunning archival material, the film stands out as much for its subtle formal innovations as for the history it details, much of which still retains the power to shock. With the new restoration coming to theaters on May 1st, or International Workers' Day, and the film's recent induction into the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. The Wobblies is once again in the public eye, and the story it tells remains as relevant as ever. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today we have a special interview with two filmmakers whose 1979 documentary The Wobblies has been restored and will be released on May 1st. And it's a real pleasure to have you both here, Deborah. Do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure, I'm Deborah Schaefer. I'm the co-director with Stuart of the Wobblies, and it was my first feature documentary, released in 1979. Seems amazing that it was that many years ago, because frankly, it feels like yesterday. And surprisingly, you know, the film still feels really relevant today. I'm sure we'll get into that. And I have. Continue to make documentary films since then. That's what I've done. I've done a lot of human rights, films about artists, a big variety of subjects, some public television work, but pretty much always documentary, documentary, documentary. That's my thing.
1: Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Your filmography is really something. Uh, Stuart,
3: do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Stu Bird, co director. Um, the Wobblies was my third film. That finally got the news about auto workers, black auto workers in Detroit, and did Coming Home on Vietnam Veterans. And Deborah and I had met each other through Newsreel, and we got together to do this film.
1: Well, I kind of wanted to start off talking a little bit about what you guys both just mentioned, which is how you came to be interested in labor history and how you came to be involved in this project. But maybe going even further back, you mentioned Newsreel. Deborah, and I know you were also were part of Newsreel, right?
2: Well, Stu and I were. That's where we actually, we actually met in Newsreel. We actually met in Detroit. I had gone out there to sort of nominally go to school, but really to kind of join the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Stu was already in Detroit making, finally got the news, and I ended up hanging out with the Detroit Newsreel.
1: A really remarkable film, by the way. Finally got the news. Thank you.
2: I ended up hanging out with the Detroit Newsreel people and I remember being taught to splice while they were one of Stu's partners taught me how to splice film. I was so excited because I was interested in the politics. Right. Primarily initially, but I turned out to love the craft.
1: Was that generally the case with uh, members of Newsreel? Do you think that a lot of a lot of those filmmakers or writers became involved with that group because of their interest in
3: politics first? Yes.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the founding members were interested in film. There were a handful of founders.
3: Yeah, I was there pretty much at the beginning. I mean, maybe by months. But um, there were people who were very skilled filmmakers, who uh, Blue Van Films, for instance, Robert Kramer, uh, John Douglas, uh, Norm Fructor who had uh, produced documentaries. And then there were people who were former artists just getting into film but they all came together with the demonstration where they try to lift the Pentagon, raise the Pentagon?
1: Right, to levitate the Pentagon, right?
3: And they all got together. There was a call to pool footage. And that was the beginning of Newsreel.
1: Was that a regional group then at the time? Or was it sort of national?
3: It was a New York group, but it spread very quickly to Boston and San Francisco. And then there were other chapters and uh, Renee Lickman and uh, Peter Gesser and myself went out to Detroit to set up a Detroit chapter, which we distributed newsreel films while we were making. Finally, got the news. Wow!
2: Which is where I came in because I was showing them on campus in Ann Arbor. I was starting to show the films there, but also an interesting little-known chapter of the early days. Jonas Mikus was involved in the very early meetings.
1: Oh,
3: interesting! Early
2: newsreel meetings in right, Stu.
3: He was giving us free rolls of film as I remember, 60 millimeter film. And we were beginning to shoot so much stuff on so many events that were happening at the time.
1: What year was this?
3: 68, 69. We were bring so much uh, footage to do art that they said we we had more than CBS was turning in.
1: How did you fund your own activities at this time? If you, I mean, was money a concern at the time?
3: Well, it was a concern, but there were some people who had some money individually and they helped fund the group generally.
2: And, and we lived on nothing. I mean, I, I when I moved to New York in 1970, I joined New York News. I lived on, I mean, I know it was different times, whatever. I, I lived on $150 a month. I worked, as a temp, I worked as a temporary secretary. You know, I'd get a call in the morning to show up at this office on Wall Street and type into somebody's punch cards. I mean, it was it's crazy. But um, we we didn't need much. I mean, we really lived very cheaply. We edited, we shot reversal film and edited the reversal directly. So I wanted to give actually a little shout out talking about the lab. I'm sure that Duart probably gave us a break sometimes, but Erwin Young has just passed away. The founder and owner of Duart Labs. And we processed our dailies at Duart in 1978. And we had gone to another lab to do the answer print. It's a long story and we weren't able to handle because we had black and white archives and colored footage. And we ended up going back to Duart and Irwin solved our problems and made us a gorgeous answer print. And Duart just did the restoration, the 4k restoration that was paid for by MoMA. So the Wobblies sort of was, you know, had its whole technical birth and, final stage at Duart Lab. And I saw Erwin one of the last times I was up there to check the, the restoration. So
3: oh, He was very important uh, to independent filmmakers. Well, there's no doubt about it. Very important. His son had been an, uh, an independent filmmaker. I forgot the name of the film, Deborah. But, oh, no,
2: his, no. It was his brother, you probably remember. Him from in- oh, it
3: was his brother. That's, That's not his, his brother, Bob
2: Young. Young. But his son is a filmmaker and is still making documentaries. Um, Todd Young.
3: Oh, interesting. I didn't know that.
1: So you guys met in Detroit in 1970. Is that around then?
2: Yes, but there's a good story about how we got into the Wobblies, because we weren't really hanging around with each other at the time we started the film. Neither of us were any longer in Newsreel. We were both living in New York.
1: Newsreel sort of dissipates, right, over the course of the 70s, or becomes a different organization.
2: Well, it's a lot, a lot of internal strife. Like many organizations, the organization sort of ate itself up from the inside in some ways although third world newsreel still continues in New York as really the continuation of what we were. And there's still a California newsreel, which is a continuation, a legacy. And they distribute all our old films. But somebody had given me a book at some point called Milltown. And it was about the strike in Lawrence. And it was written by a guy named Bill Kahn. And it was a book that had been banned in the 50s. And it was a picture book, mostly photographs of the mills in Lawrence. And it talked about the strike in Lawrence. And I was like, how come I never heard of this? You know, I'm a well educated person. I went to high school, I went to college, I'm not a historian, but I should have heard of the IWW and this major strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and I'd never heard of it. And I was just kind of shocked that the book had been banned. And then, kind of around the same time, I, Stu wrote a play called, I think it's The U.S. versus William D. Haywood, et al. It
3: was The Wobblies U.S. versus William D. Haywood at all?
2: And I went to see his play. I mean, I knew Stu. I knew it was about the IWW.
3: That
1: was produced in New York, Stu? Hudson Gill Theater.
2: I remember going. And there were some old wobblies that had shown up. They were in the audience that night. And they were all hanging around afterwards talking. And the play was great. And I was inspired by it. And I said to Stu, "At the, I was seeing these people there that night. I said, Stu, we have to do a film. <laughs> that was 77. We started with the idea. We did a little test shooting. In 77, we did a few interviews locally, New Jersey and New York State, and wrote the NEH proposal, which, you know, in the old days, under Jimmy Carter was president and the NEH was a more liberal institution.
1: Right, right. It sounds like, Stu, you had a pretty solid understanding of the history of the labor movement and of the idea of WW in particular at this point when you embarked on this project. Where did that information come from? Where did that interest come from?
3: For me, it was the same thing as Deborah. I didn't know... You know, I, I went through school, I uh, went through college, didn't know anything about the labor movement, except for my own family. You know, in the 60s, people started to read books about the type of stuff about our history. And I think a lot of filmmakers, not just Deborah and I, but a lot of filmmakers were re-looking at history, American history, and taking another glance at it and doing films about it, our videos. I read Labor's own Untold Story, which is put out by the United Electrical Workers. I read the autobiography of Big Bill Haywood, and I, I was I couldn't believe this stuff. I, you know, the Western Federation of Miners uh, having dynamite wars with uh, the Pinkertons, and I'm I'm going, what What is this about? You find out like hundreds dead
1: and just like, can you can't even imagine it.
3: Right. I mean, it, all across the West. And then, of course, the stuff in New York I knew about with the textile unions and everything. I knew a little bit about that.
1: If you grew up, I feel like in New York or in these bigger cities where these actions really like had a strong effect, then maybe you might know a little bit more about it growing up. But uh, I grew up in western Colorado, and we knew a little bit about mining, some of the uh, mining wars. But even that wasn't really clear like what had happened. We we didn't get full on history lessons in high school on that for no, sure.
3: No, no, no. This wasn't in your textbook nor in the college textbook. You know, you really had to search for it.
1: You don't know who Eugene Debs is until after you graduate college.
3: Oh, yeah. You might know Eugene Debs and Samuel Gompers. Sure. And only because Debs ran for president five times, you know. But it's true. We didn't know that history. And it was very exciting to us. And uh, I did the play with a guy I worked with at the Mayor's Office of Veterans Affairs, and we never written anything. We wrote it in the labor history, labor theater, but we gave them a copy of what we had written and they put it on. It was amazing to me. Of course, the great actors in New York, and it, it was a lot of fun.
2: Well, we ended up solving some inter- some editing problems in the film with the play, too. The play ended up becoming an inspiration. But at the time we did The Wobblies, I mean, as Stu said, we were all starting to look, a lot of us filmmakers who had been anti-war filmmakers and supporting various political movements, the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. We started to look back at our, our the left was sort of falling apart in many ways at, at the end of the Vietnam War at 74. So people started to look back to our history. Where did we come from? What were the movements that pre- preceded us what can we learn from them both their successes and their failures documentaries still had a very bad reputation in the world I was working as a film editor to make a living and I was working like at CBS actually or somewhere and I'd take a taxi home late at night people would say or whatever I'd meet people they say what do you do I said oh I make documentaries and they would say Ugh. you know it's like documentaries were like not anybody it meant it meant a classroom it meant boring like what you got in high school So I think we were kind of without knowing it and without intending to be there, we were kind of on the cutting edge of a new, of changing the definition of of what a documentary film could be. And because the leadership had all died, because we didn't have big Bill Haywood to interview or Elizabeth Billy Flynn to interview or any of the big industrialists, we had to be creative about how to include them in the film. And so, we started, we used actors' voiceovers, reading their real words. Um, but- I
1: noticed that Rip Torn is in the credits,
3: is yes, it? Yes, Rip Torn is. Rip Torn and um, Geraldine Page. Right. The biggest thrill of putting the play on was that they showed up, uh, they lived in the neighborhood, and they showed up for the for the play. And I recognized them, you know, I'd taken acting lessons and Geraldine Page. Oh, man. Great. So when Deborah and I got together and we started talking about the voiceover, I said, I'll call Rip Torn. He saw the play. Maybe he'll do it. And he did.
1: So did you use some of the excerpts from this play as the voiceovers? Because just to clarify for listeners, the the film doesn't feature a a narrator. There's no omniscient kind of storyteller marking out the history of this movement. You've constructed this film out of these voiceovers of actors reading texts, and interviews with participants, often, yeah, and uh, and archival footage and archival documents, really. So the story is all kind of told through images and the voices of the people who actually participated. And that, I think, is really what make what kind of sets it apart from documentaries that came before.
2: Yeah, that was our goal. I mean, to make it a people's history of the IWW, you know. And but we did use, I think, Stu isn't the opening bit in the film from the play that "What's your name?" Yes, yes. Yeah, we put that right out of the play. We didn't. That was right out of the play to open the film with that yes. little bit. But we didn't often when I'm making films. At least I don't really know how they begin and end. I sort of know what the body of the film is, but you have to you have to come up with an actual opening and an actual ending. And we lifted that opening out of Stu's play. And I think it works. I still think it's breathtaking. The
1: The ending, too. The ending of this is really
3: powerful.
2: I think we made the ending up. Is that from the play or did we make that up?
3: No, but we figured out to go back to the beginning to end the film. That's what we did.
2: The idea of having the judge.
3: It might seem easy now, but it actually took us a while to figure that out.
2: I remember the day we tried it. We did it with like one of us just reading the voiceover. And I remember sort of, bursting into tears because it worked and we'd found it. We didn't have an ending and we'd nailed it.
1: Yeah, it's really, it, the editing is really impressive. I mean, it seems like it was a, a huge amount of, of work to piece all these all this stuff together and make a coherent story out of it. Um, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about, like, about probably one of the more labor-intensive aspects of the production, which is the research. How did you go about finding these people, first of all? locating these people and then interviewing them (laughs) traveling around the country, finding these little old people who are, you know, just incredible in this movie. Some
3: people we had, we had a couple of people from the play, you know, we had a couple of people. So we started with them. Deborah and I figured let's just start. We got some film. I won't tell you how. And um, we just started filming. Um, But, for instance, James Fair. Let me just back up. Um, We had a board from the NEH, which were pretty much the basic uh, people who had written books on the the Wobblies or the labor movement at that time. So we had a, you know, but we wanted to find people.
1: I think Philip Foner, was he one of the...
3: Phil Foner... Um, I don't
2: think he was on our or, advisory board was he was he, on
3: yes. he was no, a okay. telephone yes
1: so these people contribute like you had you you had them as resources that you could ask
3: right exactly so that was the first place we went but then we wanted to find other people and we didn't have for instance we didn't we knew that the wobbies organized black workers right but we didn't have any and to find james fair in philadelphia was A film itself, trying to find him, and we we went on the docks, the local docks, and we put out flyers. Uh, We asked around, right, Deb? No, no computers. Yeah, before computers, right? Of course, of course.
1: So you can't just Google James Fair, right? You
3: can't Google (laughs) James Fair. Set up a Zoom meeting. I'm telling you, when we found him and met him, I mean, it was the experiences were unbelievable.
2: We went to senior centers in Philadelphia. We went to churches. We said, you know, we had a flyer that we ran off on a printing machine. Was your grandfather a Wobbly? And had people hand it out.
1: Oh, so you didn't have specific names?
3: No, we didn't have specific names. No.
1: Canvassing. Yes. So you turned him up. Did anybody? Did you find anybody else or were there any other leads that went cold?
3: We would looked a
2: long time. And once we found him, we... You know, but the others we we, we put ads in in um, labor, you know, in, in places like The Nation, Mother Jones, we put ads in magazines. And actually, then blurbs started to get. I think somebody in California got in touch with this. They said, I saw something in the newspaper about your film. My, grand, my father was a wobbly.
1: One of my favorites is Tom Scribner.
2: Oh, yeah. I well,
1: think, I mean, he's clearly one of the he's a
3: real character in this film.
2: I don't remember how we found him. Do you remember how we, because Stu, I wasn't there for that interview, actually. Stu did that one with Peter Gessner. It's
3: another California connection. I can't remember, but he was well known. Was he in Oregon at the time or was that? No, he was in Santa Cruz. Okay. And they had a statue of him. Oh, wow. Okay. In Santa Cruz. But.
1: (laughs) Well, then he must have been easier to find.
3: He lived in the hotel downtown in Santa Cruz. He was a, he was incredible.
1: I mean, he plays the singing saw at one point. I think that that's really, yeah, those moments are really incredible.
3: And he played and he talks about it in terms of orchestras and that music of the time.
2: We drove to a lot of, we flew. I mean, I remember we did a big, we organized a huge tour. This is really the, I mean, bare bones filmmaking we I think we flew to Buffalo and from there we rented a car and we and they're just the three of us we worked mostly with initially with a a cinematographer named Judy Irola who very sadly passed away last year and um and but she shot the very first stuff with us but then when we went on the road it was with Sandy Sissel who later went on to shoot um she was I Think one of the both of them were among the very first handful of women who were admitted to um, to the cinematographers union to IATSE later, but Sandy uh, Sandy actually might have already been in an IATSE anyway. Stu and Sandy and I got in a car, <laughs> and we actually we flew to Chicago and from Chicago we drove. I mean we drove, or we flew some places and drove some places. But we were in Arizona, we were in Spokane, we were in Idaho was. We we found a guy who turned out to be
3: practically a hermit in Idaho. In the, in the middle of a field. I mean, he he was living in a hovel. I don't know how. We, how did you find him? I don't remember. I mean, we just, people would say, oh, I remember so-and-so.
1: Oh, there was some wobbly guy out who lives that way up. Yeah,
3: we went through
2: our. And we were calling him. And the guy barely had a telephone. The neighbor had to go. Talk. And then we got
3: there and he was like. It was really hard for him to talk. I mean, we filmed it, but we never used it. I mean, we felt so terrible, you know. What you got is pretty good.
1: And a lot of these people were very old. I think the woman at the end, too, the woman in Arizona, Katie.
2: Most of them were in their 80s. A few were younger. Like Fred Thompson was really sort of just snuck in there. He was in his early 70s. And Utah Phillips, of course, musician was um, in his 60s.
1: Wait, so Utah Phillips was a participant?
2: Well, not in the early days. He was there with, when we interviewed Nels Peterson, he was a wannabe lovely. He was a wannabe original. He was a great folk singer.
3: Yeah, for it sure. He was a great was folk singer who sang all their songs. That, okay. that
2: was... And he supported, you know, he came along when we filmed Nels, and, and he's in the film singing.
1: That's actually a good transition, I think, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the music, because there's music throughout. <laughs> Uh, and I just, the, the overall feeling of the film is one of kind of joy really more than the gloom and kind of anger that these violent events might stir up. So I, was this a conscious effort on your part to make this kind of a joyful film or was, did this spring out of the music and joy that you encountered when
3: interviewing these subjects? The second thing. Yeah. I think you're right. It just sprang out. It, We knew we had a, you know, it was a singing union. As um, Tom Morello just said in the New York Times editorial, it was a kick-ass union with kick-ass songs. And it was, you know, we knew that. but And we knew about the Little Red Songbook and we had researched who wrote, you know. But sometimes we didn't even ask them. They just burst out into song.
1: And they knew verse after verse. I was impressed yeah. by their recall more than, you know.
3: Unbelievable.
1: They're just reeling off, like, lyrics for days.
2: Yeah, one of the first interviews we did, Sophie Cohen burst into song, and that gave us, then we asked, you know, then we kept asking people, sing your favorite IWW song, and that turned out to be a great... Um...
1: Well, it's telling, because it shows that uh, that was an important organizing technique for them, right?
3: Oh, it was crucial. Um very crucial. Um, there's a, a new book out uh, by, um, she's a, um, a niece of Frank Little, who was murdered in, uh, he was a famous organizer who was murdered. And, and she, her fa- she's connected to the family and she does a family history of the little family and how they got into the Western Federation of Miners, and who they were, the free speech fights, the uh, all, all their activities, everything came from the music, everything, and um, survival organizing. It, it really is about uh,
1: it's about solidarity too, like singing together, bringing yes. people together. Yes.
3: yes.
2: And we organized. Um, we used a couple of the songs that are in the film are from really old recordings, you know, authentic from the. I don't know how, like Haywire Mac. I don't know what year that was from. Um, but we took a bunch of the songs. We recorded. We made a sort of a makeshift studio in someone's living room in Washington D.C. We had a sound, a, like a van out in the street that had recording equipment, and we had um, Mike Seeger. Um, Alice Gerard and Joe Glazer were the three principal people and they got a bunch of their friends and we spent a day just recording song after song after song and so a lot of the soundtrack is that you know is um, I mean it's good quality recordings and but it has that really live quality too you know
1: and those three people are that you mentioned are you know legendary folk musicians now you know and singers and uh, collectors and scholars of of that folk tradition. It had to be
3: good. The Italian songs in Lawrence, we also record.
2: We recruited some Italian speaking people to sing them. That was really fun. And I ran into one of the women, uh, Camilla tono Tonilo, T- 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 I think her name is, who sort of organized that for us. And she became a film editor. And I ran into her m- many years later on another job. She said, don't you remember I did that well? <laughs> But um, I was going to say also, and along with the music, of course, it's the art and the archives that, you know, that make it.
1: Another thing that I did want to ask about were these paintings that appeared during the scenes uh, about Lawrence, about the strike in Lawrence. Where did those come from? Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you how you found those and then how you decided to incorporate them into that sequence, because that's pretty.
2: Well, that's a famous uh, painter named Robert. uh, Is his first name Robert? Fasinella. Ralph. Ralph Fasinella. Thank you. Ralph Ralph Fasinella um he was somewhat known i mean i guess we knew the paintings he had shows
1: were they contemporary it's, he was he was creating those paintings during the strike
2: he was contemporary to us oh, okay
3: the, i see right? yeah
2: he was i think they were there.
3: he went back there and did his interpretation of the strike okay. when you know of course most of the original buildings were still there in Lawrence you know, so I, I think um, that's what he worked from. So he was more contemporary, but the the pictures and the paintings that we did in Spokane, um, we got. Do you remember the library, Deborah?
2: It was an archive or a library somewhere in the West, and those were original watercolors
3: in Spokane original watercolors that were done at the time. It was a hobo painter.
1: Oh right. Yeah, those are incredible.
3: They had them in crates. We took them out and photographed. let us photograph them.
1: Yeah, those are amazing. Those are those are really beautiful. I re- I remember what you're talking about. Um and on, on the same on the same note, um you also reused these animations which are amazing. The uh the chickens going on a uh, laying down on the job, right? Okay. Where did...
3: We had great researchers. Pierce Rafferty is responsible for a lot of this. <clears throat> he uh, and his brother, Kevin and Jane Loder were at the Library of Congress working around the clock on their film, Atomic Cafe. And uh, Pierce found all this stuff in unmarked boxes. There was material that had never been seen. I mean, it had been filed away and misfiled.
1: So, was that cartoon as sort of a propaganda?
3: Is it produced by the government? Uh, was produced by Ford Motor Company? I no, that know.
2: Ford Motor Company was the other one. Was the um, <laughs> the rat? Yeah, they were. But there was a series out of Hollywood. There was an Alice series of, of films.
1: Right, it's Alice's Little Red Hen or Alice's Hands.
2: Yes. Yeah, I don't know much about the rest of the series, but um, that was the one that was you know against the Bolshevik. Rooster that organizing to to go on strike. Little Red Hensky. Little
1: Red Hensky, right from (laughs) Moscow, (laughs) taking the train in with a mustache. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I wanted to also talk about, I mean, the film very much focuses on the labor movement itself, rather than the ideology surrounding the labor movement. Uh, you know, I, the IWW is certainly uh, communist or radical or
3: radical socialist and all of these things. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't communist yet because as at the end of the film, we sort of try to deal with that. I don't know if we do it very well. But, you know, the communist revolution happened right. at the same time in 1917 that um, that all the Wobblies were arrested, you know, and their trial was in Chicago at the same time. So it wasn't like they were, uh, they, they were socialists. Most of the time they used to hold uh, their Socialist Party of America card, the Eugene Debs card, and the Wobbly card.
2: They
1: weren't part of the international
3: yet.
2: That split the Wobblies, actually, later. That was one of the, like like the new left in our era, they, they definitely ended up splitting between sort of their anarcho-syndicalist tendencies, which was really what most of the Wobblies were initially, and the people who wanted to become more affiliated with the Communist Party, which that branch eventually pretty much led to the CIO. Um, Somebody asked me today if the CIO would be against this film. I said, are you kidding? The CIO owes their existence to the IW. Wobblies died for the
3: CIO.
1: Well, I guess my question is, how, how did you navigate in the filmmaking that kind of, you really just, you really, was it a conscious decision to focus on the workers themselves?
3: Yes, it was from the ground up. That's what we were interested in. We weren't interested in making political statements. We're interested in letting people talk about their lives, how they joined, what it was like, what they were disappointed in. You know, a lot of times the the organizers left, um, or what they thought was fantastic. You know, but it was all them. I mean, we we weren't interested in laying some kind of political line down on it. And if, and Deborah has, uh, you know, I'll let her talk about it. But she's looked at Reds or we both will look at it a little bit. and The Warren Beatty film?
1: Yeah, which I think shares some of the s- same interview subjects.
3: I, I just watched it recently again. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting how they work together, especially the questions you're asking right. about the politics. Jack Reed, who... Well, Big Bill playing... Hayward
1: appears in that film too, right? And right. It, and...
3: And, and Jack Reed is carrying a flyer from the Patterson Silk Strike that radicalized him, he went there in 1914. And throughout the film, Warren Beatty is carrying that flyer uh, of the worker coming out of the factories. That was for a thing at Madison Square Garden that they did uh, to help the strike supposedly in Patterson. So he was, his heart was with the wobblies and he's going to see what this communist revolution is about. So you can see that he both is is thrilled by it. He writes 10 Days That Shook the World, but he also doesn't, you know, it doesn't have that American feel that the Wobblies had, which is how he got into all this stuff.
2: But I, you know what I remember, Stu, I, that at, at the end of the film, I remember feeling very, that we had learned, I had changed my thinking by the time the film ended because by the time we ended the, pro, you know, working on the film, because I think I thought, oh, you know, the, the IWW was torn apart by internal strife and in this fight between the budding communists and the anarchists. And, but by the time we were done and we, had, we were done interviewing everybody and understanding the level of repression that came down on the IWW 101 of their leaders arrested nationwide i mean it's a precursor to the chicago 7 trial
1: right but it's 101 instead of 7 yeah
2: in 10 times more yeah.
3: <laughs> because it was more threatening yeah
2: you know and people were people were jailed and people were at, were deported um i don't know members it's unbelievable. it is and you know the wobblies um suffered through repression more than anything else more than internal st- more than anything. They suffered from the enormity of the government apparatus that came down on their heads for trying to organize workers. And I'll tell you, nothing is different. I mean, as Stu and I were sort of so excited about the Stu called me when the the New York Times came out with the article about the Amazon in organizing in Staten Island and and you know we have to and I read yesterday about the how Amazon is coming back at them now. They're throwing everything at the book in them. They're going through every legal machination they can to try it was an illegal election, people were coerced into voting. They're going to do everything they can to destroy that.
1: Well, yes. Short of actually murdering the organizers, which is what the IWW organizers were facing, you know, That's right. and this is really That's like right. what makes this story so incredible, and like, you know, it resonates today, sure, in these in these contemporary labor struggles, but I think that like, uh, these people put their actual lives, you know, on the line just by going on the picket line. Um, And it's and it's something that is very difficult to understand from, um, you know, today, I think. And I think the film does a great job of making that clear, too, by actually giving these people's voices.
3: That's right. That's what we tried to do.
1: Yeah, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the film as you kind of were just talking about this, but. Its reliance on oral history, really, and coming out of more of a tradition of oral history rather than this kind of narrative storytelling documentary. And there are a number of other films from around the same time that deal with similar subjects. I'm thinking of like Union Maids, um, and uh, what's the the Rosie the Riveter movie,
2: which I it... came at, came after. Us. Union Maids was before, and I'm good friends with Julia. Riker still um, she and her partner Steve Bogner are helping us with the promotion to labor because she released a film about a year ago called nine to five the story of a movement, which is about the nine to five secretaries, um, the organization that started in Boston terrific film anyway. They-
1: so they all kind of approach the material in a similar way.
2: We kept building on each other is the way I put it. I mean, Union Maid's was really a black and white, very you know one of the first, and then the Wobblies came after Union Maid's.
1: Union Maid's what nineteen seventy six, so it was a couple of, around then maybe.
2: Uh, oh, Union Maid's you. was probably seventy six, yeah, and the Wobblies was seventy nine, and then um, and then Julia turned around Julia and she was partners with Jim Klein at the time they were making films together. They turned around and made Seeing Red. Um, in which in which they took a lot of things from the wobblies. And by the way, Warren Beatty also, his team was calling us for ask, asking research questions. A couple of the witnesses in reds are um appear in film. Uh Art Shields, and especially Roger Baldwin. You were asking about to ask about the structure. Uh and I think one of the most um unique things we did was used one of our interviewees, Roger Baldwin, we really use him as a narrator. We um, asked him, there were certain, there obviously there's certain pieces of information we didn't have and we absolutely needed the founding convention. We needed to link from one region of the country to another from one era, one strike to another. So Roger became, we actually figured out in the editing where we had gaps and we went back to Roger and said would you fill these in for us and we actually had written out a script for him he was 94 at the time we had written out a script for him to read and he picked it he had a piece of paper and he said oh, I wouldn't say it like this and he went and rewrote everything we did <laughs> and then recorded it and you know he later became one of the founders of the ACLU And I had forgotten how he has a very big part in Reds. I, having watched it recently, he's really just terrifically eloquent. And uh, that was a really great device because we had a narrator without really having a narrator.
1: Did you have a version of the film early where you had a narrator or some kind of, this was always going to be this sort of oral history, archival documentary, yeah.
2: When I went to work for television, I said, "Okay, we're going to do it without a narrator." And they looked at me and they said, "No, we're not going to do it without a narrator." But on my own films, I've never used
3: some. You know, we asked uh, some people to write letters for us uh, to get the film preserved by uh, the National Film Registry, and there was one academic, and I forgot who it was, who said, "Well, the film is should be preserved, but it's." an archive in itself you know it's an archive in itself in terms of what they got
1: yeah i mean the footage the interviews is it's incredible
3: we don't know it's
2: interesting you know of course we made this film it's a long time ago and it's it's a little bit of a surprise to me that you know here we are 40 i can't do the math but 42 43 years later yeah that um but, you know, the people are gone. You couldn't do this film. Nobody else did a film about the IWW when they were still alive. And everybody, you know, who we interviewed for the film is is gone now. Every now and then I get a letter from, like, somebody's grandchild asking for a link or a copy.
1: Right. I mean, it would be incredible to see your grandparents. But they
2: really, we, you know, so the film has become a classic partly because it's the only one that preserves those real voices of those real people who were part of that very real movement.
1: You kind of tr- touched on this a little bit, but what it means to you both as filmmakers and as historians that the film has been inducted into the National Film Registry last year and you know this restoration and release and that it's still uh garnering so much attention is this yeah, I guess I guess what do you, what do you see as this film's legacy?
2: Well, I think it's up to other people to decide what the legacy, what the what the legacy is. But it's 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 a bit of a surprise to me that that a film I you know that the first sort of feature documentary I made um, has probably become the film I'm going to be most remembered for. Uh, you know, even though I have many other films about many other subjects and a short film that won an Academy Award and um, but you can't, you know, those things are really unpredictable, I guess, in life. You can't know um, what's, you know, and you never start a film thinking, oh, I'm going to make a classic. I mean, <laughs> you obviously don't think that way. We made, a, we made this film because we, you know, cared deeply about the people and the movement and the cause and the issues. And, um, you know... The, because those things, because so many of those things are still with us, the film is still speaking to people. And, and I think we, you know, we both, we worked very hard and we got, um, it's not luck. I don't think it's luck. I mean, I think we, we worked very hard to craft a film that would work as a movie. You know, that wouldn't be that kind of documentary that I started out talking about that just, you know, maybe want to go to sleep or, you know, think you were back in school. I've always thought that, you know, documentaries need to be as as entertaining as any other media. I mean, they're films, they're movies.
3: When Deborah and I decided we were going to give it, uh, we had sort of tried to get it in the National Film Registry once before. Uh, I, I don't know, it was sort of half-hearted, uh, uh, but we tried. And then we decided, all right, look, we'll do it one more time. This is it. We'll, we'll, we'll really try to do it and that's it. You know, but we're not doing it anymore. And um, what really heartened us and made us feel incredible was the letters of support that we got from people, many of whom we didn't know, you know, academics, uh, um, others um, who loved the film, people who used the film for 25 years. I mean, people who you just we just kept reading them to ourselves, you know, Um and um it, it made us feel really good made, because we we haven't talked about the film, you know, over the years, you know, we haven't shown it or, you know, we've gone on with it. It's
2: very gratifying. Actually, I should give a shout out to the New York Women in Film and Television because if it weren't for their film preservation committee, we wouldn't be here talking about this now. Because in 2004, I think um, I asked you and said, "Could I apply for a grant to New York?" They were preserving films, and we got a grant to do a 16-millimeter preservation in 2004. And actually, Erwin Young helped with that too. And we made a preservation copy, and then donated it. Part of the condition of the grant was you have to give it to an archive, so we gave it to the we donated it to the Museum of Modern Art. Then. And so that was really the beginning of all of this new revival, because New York Women in Film and Television had a screening in 20, 2018 in, uh, at Union Docks in Williamsburg. And Stu and I were both there. And I think that was the night we hadn't, I hadn't seen the film in years. But, I mean, i had seen it in the preservation, when we'd done the preservation in 2004, I guess, 2005. But in 2018, we showed it at an audience in Williamsburg and we were like, oh, my goodness, this is really These issues—it was very much because of the deportations were very, uh, were were happening then at the border, and uh, that's what kicked up, really kicked into high gear the idea of of um, getting you know recampaigning for the National Film Registry, and we got a lot of help from New York Women Film, New York Women in Film and Television, their Film Preservation Fund, to and then to get the 4K restoration done, and we were talking about doing it on our own, and and MoMA said, we'll do it.
1: Well, wow. yeah, I'm reminded of the uh, that cartoon that I mentioned earlier, where the, the the Ford one, right, where it says American institutions, the farmers looking at his American institution, and then he says Bolshevists, Bolshevists are the rats of civilization sneaking in <laughs> yeah. through the little hole, going into the national <laughs> <laughs> film registry. Uh, but I think this resurgence of interest in this material is at this time is. I mean, there's always an interest in this, but uh, it seems to be seems to be picking up a little bit.
3: Oh, I think so. I really think so. Um, even what finally got the news, this black camera out of Indiana University is yeah. calling for papers on 50 years after finally got the news. Wow! I sent it to you, Deb.
2: You sent me the email where they were asking.
3: It's like. Oh, and
2: unions are coming back. There's a real. Interest. Yeah. I mean, at the time we made the Wobblies, I think 70 percent right. of the workforce was unionized, right? And now it's less than 10 percent of the American workforce. But there's a huge interest, and among the most marginalized workers, Starbucks workers are joining the IWW. There, there are there are Starbucks shops that have been affiliated now with the IWW, and this Amazon thing really is. Um, Very thrilling. And we're going to do everything we can, you know, to support them and make the film available.
1: Yeah. I I just the other day I went to The Strand and I was looking for um, a book on labor history. And they're like, oh, the labor history section is actually in the basement in the far back corner. And I said, oh, (laughs) why is that? And they said management requested that it be put that that the section be moved (laughs) <laughs> i couldn't the believe strand?
3: it oh my god well, so, oh, yeah. man. it's not
1: it's not exactly the pinkertons coming into crack heads but it's uh <laughs> you know uh, slightly more subtle well thank you guys both for so much for coming on it's been a real treat oh, to talk to you our
3: pleasure our pleasure been great really
2: it was really terrific thank you so much
0: Oscilloscope presents the film, The Tale of King Crab. The International Cinephile Society hails it as an atmospheric masterpiece and an unforgettable chronicle of humanity. The sumptuous Italian fable of love, adventure, and redemption across 19th century Tuscany and Tierra del Fuego opens April 15th exclusively at Film at Lincoln Center. The Cannes and New York Film Festival favorite is proudly supported by Cinema Made in Italy. For tickets, visit filmlink.org slash crab.